Good morning. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix, sitting in today for Steve Goldstein. Later this hour, are Arizonans getting the flu vaccine this year, and how are health officials trying to convince us to do it? Plus, we'll talk about the recipients of the 2017 Arizona Humanities Awards. But we start today, as we often do these days, with politics, specifically Arizona politics under the Copper Dome at 1700 West Washington. Lawmakers will convene their 2017 session in about a month, but they're already introducing bills and buzz is starting to grow about some of the potentially big issues they'll be tackling. Joining me to talk about all that is Ben Giles. He covers the state Senate for the Arizona Capital Times. And Ben, it seems like one of the biggest things is school funding. It was last year. People have been calling Proposition 123 a first step, and now they're talking about steps two, three, and four. What are you hearing as far as what those steps might look like? Well, the big news today, just this morning, is that Governor Doug Ducey is announcing um, some proposed changes to school funding that are coming from a, a working group that's been studying this issue for well over a year now. Um, and the biggest idea that has come out of that group, um, again, we're just learning about some of their proposals this morning, is to completely overhaul the way K-2 uh, K through 12 schools are funded to change the formula that the state uses to calculate that. And the hope is that with a more streamlined process and maybe a, a simpler formula that uh, treats uh, schools perhaps more fairly than the current formula does, is that will free up more money for, for all schools. Um, there's also talk about uh, full-day pre-K, as there's been uh, whispers the last couple of years. Um, that idea hasn't gotten much steam at the Capitol as of yet, but uh, could be different this year. Um, and it appears that the uh, report that the governor is discussing is also talking about um, trying to reduce school districts' reliance on property tax overrides. You probably saw a few of those on ballots recently this past uh, year. And that's been, a, that's been a key way for some school districts to try and supplement the funds that they feel they're lacking, uh, the funds that they get from the state. Does it look like these changes would shift around existing money? Are there calls for new money to go into potentially some of these new formulas? I think there will be calls for new money. It's just a matter of, uh, and we don't know this yet, where those calls are coming from. I think certainly Democrats uh, at the Arizona legislature want to see uh, what folks are calling the next step after Proposition 123, which did provide um, some sort of new money for schools, basically borrowing from another uh, long-term school funding source, source that the state had to provide some immediate funds for the next 10 years. But uh, I think most lawmakers, if possible, would like to find a long-term solution. Again, the funding from Prop 123 will only last for 10 years. And one of the warnings that came out during the vote on that was that there will be essentially a funding cliff created at the end of the, the decade. And schools are going to need a, a long-term solution for some of the funding problems that they've faced. So should we be looking for some of those proposals to come out as individual bills once the legislative session begins next month? It might be individual bills, but I think a lot of those discussions will more likely be wrapped into the budget process. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, perhaps some Democrat sponsor bills that would provide more funding for schools. But um, as is the case in a Republican-dominated state capital, Democratic bills don't get very far, if ever, at uh, the Arizona legislature. So more likely the place to look for funding solutions for schools will be within the budget. Uh, however, the uh, 
the word from the governor's office and the word from budget analysts is that there's not much money available. The governor has made it clear that a balanced budget is one of his top priorities. And uh, the word from uh, the ninth floor at the Capitol where the governor works has been that there's about $24 million to work with, a $24 million surplus. And we already know that there are several issues that are going to require some immediate attention and take up a chunk of those funds. Yeah, presumably there's more than $24 million worth of projects lawmakers would like to fund. Um, One of the things that we've heard both on the national and state levels is tax reform, and Governor Ducey has made tax cuts, uh, one of the hallmarks of his administration. Are we hearing anything yet about what on the tax front we might be looking at this year? No, we haven't heard a big idea on tax cuts other than, you know, the governor's uh, desire to phase out and possibly eliminate the income tax. However, given, uh, as I just said, there's only $24 million to, to play with for a variety of projects, millions and millions of dollars of projects that uh, that lawmakers and, and I'm sure even the governor would, would like to work on. And as long as the state's finances are in that tight of a situation, um, it would be it wouldn't be palatable to to propose a dramatic reduction in taxes because that would mean a dramatic reduction in state revenues and then where are you where are you going to get the money from to actually fund these projects and fund needs such as uh, increased spending for schools so uh, what the governor has done the last two years is sort of chip away at the edges on tax reform doing a little bit here a little bit there. Um, I, I would be surprised to see a, a, a major proposal, just given the, uh, the state's financial state. Ben Giles covers the state Senate for the Arizona Capital Times. Ben, good to talk to you. Thanks, as always. Thanks. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report as of early last month, only two out of five Americans had gotten a flu vaccine. That's similar to last year's levels. Every year, health officials urge people to get vaccinated. The CDC estimates that prevented about 5 million flu illnesses and more than 70,000 flu-related hospitalizations. With me to talk about where Arizona's vaccination rates are now and how state health officials are trying to get more people to get flu shots is Kara Chris, director of the State Department of Health Services. And Dr. Chris, how does Arizona's vaccination rate compare to the national one? You know, we don't have our vaccination uh, numbers just yet, but we tend to fall at about the 40% vaccination range in Arizona. So those numbers would be consistent with our vaccination rates over the past few seasons. I think I know how you would answer this question, but I'll ask anyway. Is that number high enough for you? No, we don't think that that number is high enough. Everyone who is over the age of six months who is able to get the flu vaccine should get vaccinated because you never know what you're going to get with the flu season and flu can be deadly. Are there parts of the state that typically have higher vaccination rates than others? You know, we do see uh, pockets of under immunization with all of our immunizations um, statewide, and they're all over the state. We work with those areas to try and identify what the barriers to vaccination would be, bring education, and work with the schools to ensure that kids are fully vaccinated. Do you find the same places that have under vaccination for flu as for other kinds of other kinds of immunizations? 
to track the flu by location is a little bit different because we use a different data method, but we would assume that you would have higher rates of flu under vaccination in those areas just like you would. However, our vaccination rate for our required vaccines is much higher. So this is a voluntary vaccine that people have to get every year so we know the compliance rates are a little bit lower or a lot lower. What do you hear as some of the reasons why folks don't get the flu vaccine? Well, one of the biggest reasons we hear that people don't get the flu vaccine is because they believe they will get the flu by getting the vaccine, and that is simply not true. Your body responds in the same way. It develops an immune response so that the next time it sees that virus that's that it's trying to fight off, it will be able to respond faster. However, there is not live flu virus in the vaccinations, so you don't have to worry about getting the flu. How do you try to combat that? I mean, you can tell people, I guess, till you're blue in the face that getting a flu vaccine does not mean you will get the flu. But if they don't believe it, they don't believe it. Right. Right. It is very difficult because no vaccine is 100 percent perfect. And so there will be times that some people may still get the vaccine and then end up getting influenza because the strains can change. The virus can mutate. It can be a completely different strain than what's in the vaccine. However, you know what, what I like to tell people as a public health physician and, and knowing diseases, influenza is one of the things that scares me the most. Why is that? You know, it is highly contagious, it's highly unpredictable, and it kills tens of thousands of people every year. So it just, you can get sick just by touching somebody, something that somebody else has touched and then touching your face, and then you can end up with the flu. Um, I got the flu during the 2009 um, influenza season, and I will never want to get the flu again. You are extremely sick, and I'm a healthy individual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We hear so much about this sort of herd mentality where a enough people get a vaccine to sort of protect, you know, the the community as a whole. Given that our rates tend to be about 40 percent, how far away are we from having a true sort of herd protection effect? Well, for something like measles or our vaccine preventable diseases, um, you want to have... um, low to mid 90% of um, people covered in order to get that herd effect. Because what you're trying to do is to get enough people immunized so that there's no path of unimmunized people to people that can't get vaccines. So those that can't get it because they're undergoing cancer treatment or they have a disease that disables their immune system. Some of those people can't get vaccines. So you want to protect them by surrounding them with vaccinated people. That will allow them not to have at least sick people around them. And in order to do that, you have to have much higher rates of vaccination. Yeah, we're pretty far away from that. We're pretty far away from that. But, you know, every single person counts. The more people that we can get vaccinated, the higher likelihood we have of keeping flu out of our communities. Are you satisfied with the availability of the flu vaccine across the state? Yes, over the past few years, we've had good vaccine availability. So we would encourage people, it's never too late to vaccinate. Our flu season usually really picks up um, between January and March with the highest February and March, but we've seen it all the way out until May. So what we want to make sure people understand is it's not too late. It takes about two weeks to build up your immunity after you get your immunization, um, but then you're covered until the next year. So we want to make sure, get your vaccine, even if you think it's too late because flu is so predictably unpredictable. Dr. Kara Christ is director of the Arizona Department of Health Services. Dr. Christ, thanks a lot. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having us.
Good morning. It's here and now on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. An effort to create so-called prosperity states across the country comes to Arizona today. Economist Steve Moore, a national spokesman for Compact for America, is talking to members of the state legislature this morning, and he joins me. So, Steve, what are prosperity states? What exactly are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a state that uh, designates certain areas within the state, normally economically depressed areas, sometimes inner cities, sometimes rural areas that have been left behind, that are designated areas where you can reduce regulation, reduce taxation, reduce other costs um, that allow these areas to redevelop so that you can bring jobs and incomes and families back. And and that, th- this is something that has been um, tried over the years and has been successful and Uh, I would love to see it done in Arizona, as I'd like to see many other states follow suit. Why do you think Arizona might be a good place to try this? Well, because there are a lot of, there is a a very, uh, been a very prosperous state over the last 20 years in terms of your growth, but there are also a lot of areas that have not seen the the development. Um, And these are tending to be uh, minority areas. Some of the rural areas um, have been hard hit uh, and never really felt the effects of the recovery. And those areas need a chance to, uh, to rebound. And I think the way to do that is to take some of the weights of government off of their back. And look, if we want to reduce income inequality and we want to provide opportunity for everyone, let's uh, provide some special help for the worst, uh, you know, the hardest hit areas of the country and the hardest hit areas of the state. So what specifically would these prosperity districts do differently? Like how, what kind of tax reform, what kind of regulatory reform? Well, they would have on the regulation. It would be all sorts of regulations, whether it's some of the, you know labor uh, regulations, some of the environmental regulations on taxes. It would be some of the relief from income taxes, possibly uh, if we had you know some federal legislation, possibly some payroll tax relief, um, so that it becomes more economical for businesses to relocate. You also need you know in a lot of these areas, you need better safety and protection and need to keep the, uh, you know, get rid of crime and better public services. And all of those things I've found in my research, uh, when you have a a prosperity zone that the government has really uh, made a commitment to helping develop, um, you can see a pretty fast turnaround in a lot of these areas. How does it work logistically as far as a particular zone or a part of the state that has, for example, different regulatory environment or different taxing environment than the rest of the state? Well, the way these uh, these arrangements work is that the legislature designates these areas as specially distressed areas. Uh, by the way, they don't necessarily have to be distressed, but I believe uh, most of them uh, would be areas where you have low incomes and very few jobs and a lot of people in poverty. And you provide special exemptions for that area because you place a high priority in um, allowing these places to redevelop. And so we believe that over you know a 10 or 15-year period, It takes a little time to bring back economic growth to these areas, but you could see, um, you know, significant rises in income. You could see, you know, an increase in housing. By the way, when we talked about, you know, some of the regulations, housing regulations and zoning regulations and so on, that oftentimes restrict the ability to to build new housing at economical costs, those can be things that inhibit redevelopment uh, as well. So the idea is to try to bring prosperity to places in the state 
that haven't felt the recovery. And uh, the evidence from the last 20 years were these kinds of things. They used to be called enterprise zones in, a, in an earlier um, incarnation. Um, and we had some success with that, but then they kind of went away. This is slightly different because they are, they are state legislation, legislative districts and they are, you know, they are, um, the legislature would designate well, which city blocks and what areas, uh, what counties would be um, affected. They could be areas small, as little as maybe four s- square blocks, or they could potentially even be an entire city or county. What's the advantage of doing it this way as opposed to just trying to convince legislatures and governors to loosen regulations across the board and change you know, tax structures across the board? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think the answer is that... Uh, you know, there is often resistance to these kinds of changes on a statewide basis. And what our hope would be, and one of the things that we hope if, if these um, renewal zones uh, and districts are approved, is that they become showcases for what can happen if you loose, loosen regulation and you uh, lighten the burden of taxation. Uh, and if you can show that it can work in some of the you know, worst areas in terms of economic development, then we could say, well, why not make the whole state an enterprise zone, so to speak? And and so we think you you start with the worst first, though, because that's what a lot of state legislators, they say, well, look, we don't want to provide tax relief for everybody, but people who are really financially distressed, we want to help them first. Part of your effort in talking to Arizona is to get the state to approve this as a whole. Yes. You're talking to other states as well. What is the, the purpose? What is, I guess, the goal behind getting a number of states to, to all sign on to this? Well, the idea is that you could then have what's called a compact, and this is part of the Constitution. And a compact is an arrangement among, among states where uh, they can essentially override some of the uh, federal rules if they have a compact. And you're going to need congressional, you know, U.S. congressional approval of that. But uh, this, so this is a multi-step process. But the first step is to get the Arizona legislature to allow some of these designated areas to begin. And, and incidentally, people say, well, we can't. One of the complaints that I've heard is, gee, we can't afford the revenue loss of giving tax relief to some of these areas. And my response to that is, well, what are you talking about? A lot of these areas are so depressed, there is no revenue. You know, so you can't lose, you know, when there's no economic development, you're not, you're not going to lose revenue if new development comes in because it wouldn't have been there otherwise. And, and uh, you know, then you have workers who are working, they're not on welfare, they're not collecting public benefits. And it, it, it actually can, in my opinion, actually reduce the burden of, you know, state finances because you're now putting people into jobs, whereas they used to be, you know, on public assistance. Do you think there might be less of a need for this on the state level, given some of the comments among uh, Republican leaders in Congress and those of the incoming Trump administration? Oh, I think they go hand in hand. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing some work with the Trump team, and I helped uh, write uh, Donald Trump's tax plan that will be debated over the months to come. Uh, but I think, you know, if you do the Trump plan on the national level, I think it will certainly help in states like Arizona. But then, you know, you can have a, more of a micro-targeting of, you know, we're really talking about areas where you have high levels of poverty, poor schools, um, very little new business development. You know, again, places that were almost left behind in this recovery. And, and I've been around the country, I have to say, there are a lot of areas like that. I think it's one of the reasons Donald Trump, frankly, won the election, because a lot of people feel like, yeah, if you live in Silicon Valley, it's a good economy. Or if you live in uh, you know, Manhattan or Wall Street, it's a good economy or Washington, D.C. But, you know, there's so many areas of the country, you know, a lot of working class towns, by the way, not just necessarily inner cities, 
that haven't seen that kind of economic development. And these people feel financially stressed out. I've seen them. I've met them. They feel that nobody, the politicians don't care about them and that, uh, you know, the American dream is dead. And what better way to bring back the American dream to these areas than bring jobs back, bring development back and bring hope back. Economist Steve Moore is a national spokesman for Compact for America. He's in Phoenix today to talk to state lawmakers about prosperity states and prosperity districts. Steve, thanks a lot. Oh, thank you for having me. Have a great day. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. There's a good amount of housing construction going on around the valley, but a lot of those projects are apartment buildings, rental housing, as opposed to single-family housing. It's been a pretty good run for the valley's rental housing market over the past several months, and with me to talk about it is Pete Tecamp. He's a commercial real estate agent with the firm Marcus & Millichap in Phoenix. And Pete, it looks like as far as valley rental housing, mar- as the valley's rental housing market goes, it seems like there are some good signs, but also some not-so-terrific signs. Would you say that's an accurate reading? Well, here's how I would characterize what's happening in the rental market right now. And I think in our last interview, uh, we called it the halcyon days of apartments from a, a landlord's perspective. Highest rents ever, lowest vacancies ever, among the lowest concessions ever. Vacancies ticked up a little bit, but that's a function of a concern in the marketplace uh, related to all of the new units that are coming online. And that's what all the people who deal with me want to know about. How many units are coming? What type of apartments are being built? Size range, price range to the consumer, et cetera. So that, that's a concern on everybody's mind right now. And people are worried that we might be overbuilding. I don't think that's the case, but we can get into that in a moment. How many new units are coming online? And what do you see as the demand for this kind of housing right now? Are you sitting down? So here's, <laughs> I am, yes. Uh, here's... here's Here's what we have. So far this year, through the end of third quarter of 16, we have added 5,067 new apartment units. Is that a lot? That's, I mean, on average, we build between five and 6,000 per year. So that's just through the third quarter. So keep in mind, we still have to get through October, November, and December. The interesting thing, again, that that this is what everybody wants to talk about right now, as of you and I sitting here speaking, there are 10,380 units that are scheduled for construction or under construction. What's the time frame for those being finished? It it depends. Uh, Most of that is going to come online over the next 12 to 18 months. Maybe a quarter to a third of it will actually be up and running by the end of the year. I don't see uh, this slowing down anytime soon. Are there enough people to fill all those apartments? Well, we have among the lowest vacancies right now that we've ever had in Maricopa County since I've been keeping track of the market in 1995. So we're going on 21 years. And vacancies right now are 7.3% valley-wide. That is not the lowest it's ever been, but it's close to the lowest it's ever been. And the other thing that happened in the most recent quarter is nine out of 30 submarkets recorded average rents above $1,000 a month. That's never happened before. Of all of those apartments that have come online and those 10,000 plus that are looking to come online in the next 12 to 18 months, how many of those would you consider high-end luxury type apartments? It's a great, uh, that's a great question. And I, I would say that most of them are. Let me, let me illustrate something. In 2010, or since 2010, we have built 10,918 one-bedroom, one-bath units with an average square footage of 760. The average asking rent for those is $1,168 a month. That sounds like a lot. It is. Now, if you take into account anything built 2009 and earlier, just valley-wide, 
there's 103,655 one-bedroom, one-bath units with an average size of 662. So the new product is a little bit bigger, or actually 100 square foot, uh, almost 100 square feet uh, larger, which is significant. And the average rent, asking rent for those is 773. So that's a $400 plus spread over what the conventional typical average is out there. So the new uh, units that are coming online, most of it, 95 to 98% of it is class A plus high quality, rich amenity package, primo location, uh, uh, high-end apartments. And there's concern that our rental market might be getting top-heavy. Yeah, I'm wondering about that because it seems like there would be a market for people sort of either in the middle or even on the lower end. And as these new units, these new high-end units come online, maybe some of the older units that had been considered nice, that maybe are no longer considered nice because there's much nicer that's there, maybe those could be converted into something that people who can't afford upwards of $1,000 for a one-bedroom unit could live in. There are There's a term out there that the rest of the industry, a lot of Insiders are using it right now, but the entire industry is going to know about it and and be talking about it within the next 6 to 12 months called workforce housing. Infill, uh, located apartments, maybe some older buildings that are purchased by an investment group that they upgrade the units, maybe not to an A-plus standard, but to a very nice standard that caters to that middle-range renter who has been over the last four or five years, as these numbers indicate, severely underserved because all of those buildings that that you had just described are there's waiting lists of renters to move into them. In the past, when you and I have spoken, we've talked about the sort of shortage of lower income housing and apartments for folks with more modest incomes. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Not at all. In fact, so far this year, just through year to day 2016, if you talk about a family that might go rent a two-bedroom, two-bath unit, we built 1,845 two-bedroom, two-bath units in 2016 through the third quarter of this year. Average asking rent, $1,485, $1,485. That's a mortgage payment for these people that you're talking about. It seems like for folks who can't afford to buy a house, who might be looking to rent, it seems like they might have trouble finding a place where they can even afford to rent. That's why this workforce housing market is really getting uh, stronger in the marketplace and why there is so much demand from the renter's perspective and from the investor's perspective to get into those fix them up and get them going. But it's area specific and I want to emphasize it's submarket specific. We have 30 submarkets that we keep track of and all of them have unique characteristics and all of them have different market psychology. Where do you see the top for this market right now? Like are we are we approaching the peak? Are we sort of on a bubble now? Like, where do you think we are? (laughs) A lot of people out there feel that we're at the top of the market and we're not going to know that until we look back and say, oh, gee, things really turned down. I'm very, very bullish on the near and intermediate term uh, of Phoenix. And and the, the thing that drives our market is job growth. And unlike cycles in the past, we are not dependent on the construction industry. That that was really the one industry that brought a lot of people here. And there are some ancillary things that are related to that, but we're getting, we're diversifying into biotech and distribution. And, and there are all these other industries that are employing people and those people need to live someplace and they're renting apartments. Do you still find that the people who are renting these higher end apartments are those who ideally would like to be buying a house? Or are these people who are choosing to rent and this is what they are choosing to rent? 
I uh, uh, I hear the term, or I've heard we've all heard the term millennials over the past few years, and say these people want to be mobile and they want to live in a, you know, a hip urban setting. Well, now the millennials are getting older, and some of them are starting families, and maybe living in that cool hip urban apartment building no longer suits their lifestyle. Millennials are smart people, and they are recognizing the value of home ownership, and there are savvy developers who are building infill. They ostensibly appear to be apartment buildings, but a lot of it is owner-occupied housing. And uh, so they're trying to cater to uh, that niche in the market. And it's not just millennials. There are people who want to you know, be the empty nesters. So we're seeing more density developments coming online. And I think you're going to see more owner-occupied housing that appears to look like an apartment building, but really might be an owner-occupied product. That's P.T. Camp with the Phoenix firm Marcus and Millichap. Pete, thanks as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Good morning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix, and today for Steve Goldstein. Arizona Humanities has announced its 2017 award winners. They include an English professor at ASU, the founder of a program that brings veterans into classrooms, and the archivist and librarian of the Chicano Research Collection at ASU. With me to talk about the winners is Brenda Thompson, executive director of Arizona Humanities. And Brenda, first off, what criteria do you look for when you're considering who your award recipients will be? Well, there's a lot of different things we look at. There's three different awards criterion. uh, I'm sorry, there's three different awards categories, a public scholar, a friend of the humanities, and a rising star. And for each one of those, we look at what someone's contribution is to the culture of Arizona. We look at their scholarly work and background. Especially, we look at their community outreach and engagement. And all three of the award winners are really outstanding examples of those things. They're intellectuals, but they're also people who bring their work to people at all levels. So they work with elementary school kids, uh, high school kids, college students, and then also adults all over the state of Arizona. How important is it to you that these award winners are sort of out in the community and not just, you know, doing their, their work sort of theoretically? It is the most important part of what we do. Um, one of the things that our mission calls for us to do is serve people statewide. We promote a just and civil society, and we create opportunities for people to learn about the human experience. And people often ask us, well, what does that mean? It's everything that people do. Uh, Even us having a conversation on the radio is a reflection of American culture. A lot of people receive their news and events and learn about history that's unfolding every day through the radio. So we want to make sure when we reach people, whether they're in a tiny rural community or in an urban hub, that they all have a chance to learn about the world around us and the history that makes us who we are. I want to ask you briefly about each of the award winners. Let's start with the Humanities Public Scholar, which uh, goes to Jim Blassingame, who's an English professor at ASU. Yes, he's an English professor, and he is so much more. (laughs) When he, he teaches, that's one of the things that he is excellent at, and he's won awards from ASU for being um, the doctoral mentor of the year, and um, he's been a Parents Association mentor of the year, but he also does a lot of work in the community with young adults. He focuses on uh, youth literature and also on Native American culture. So he's been working with elementary school kids, doing a very popular program called um, Dia de los Libros, which is the day of the books, and so kids get a chance to read books, meet authors, do activities, and write, um, see Native American dancers and culture. They get exposed to a lot of different things. And then he also recently received a grant for a program uh, called Red Ink, and that is a unique program that is working with Native American youth, making sure that they have access to Native American authors and poets 
And so about 250 uh, high school students who are Native American will get to attend four cultural events over the course of the next year where they'll get exposed to poetry and authors and learn how to participate in writing and literature. And I think that's pretty cool because those communities are really spread out, very diverse, and Arizona has one of the largest Native American populations in the country. So he's made a point of reaching uh, those kids at all levels. The next award is the Friend of the Humanities, and that goes to Barbara Hatch, who's founder and program director of Veterans Heritage Project. What about her and what about her work uh, led you to give her this award? Well, she's a standout. Barbara Hatch has been a high school teacher for 40 years, and during that time, one of the things she did in 98 was started bringing veterans to her class. So when she was teaching kids about history, they wouldn't just be reading about it in books. They would actually get to talk to soldiers and learn about what it was the experience was to be in war and coming home from war. So she launched in 2004 this project called the Veterans Heritage Project. And what she did was she started matching high school students with a veteran. So the kids would do research on the particular war, and then they would meet a veteran in person, not only learn their story, but they would actually capture it. They would record it. They would write a story that ended up being a bound volume. And then the audio stories ended up being collected and sent to the Library of Congress. So it is now spread to over 26 high schools across the state. It's been a model. They were cited as a program that was considered one of the most excellent in the United States by the Library of Congress. And over a 1,000 veteran stories have been collected. And I've got to tell you, they are both heart-wrenching and humorous. We got to hear from a, a woman veteran who was almost 100 years old, and it was quite a kick to hear what it was like to be one of the first women veterans. And then you also hear from veterans uh, and high school students who will tell you that the project changed their lives. Some veterans never told anyone, not even in their own families, their story until they were interviewed by a high school student. Hmm. And they said that um, it opened up um, memories that they were then able to share with their family and community. And so not only was it educational from a history perspective, it was also healing. The last uh, major award you have is the Humanities Rising Star Award, which you have given this year to uh, Nancy Liliana Godoy Powell, who is the archivist and librarian of the Chicano Chicano Research Collection at ASU. What was it about uh, her work that uh, that led her to get this award? Well, she's another person who has emerged as as young as she is, as a leader. And, and it's interesting because people often think of librarians as quiet little people uh, shelving books, and she, that is not uh, Nancy. She's actively engaged and a passionate advocate for underserved communities. And she's actually targeted preserving, collecting, and telling the stories of Chicanas and Chicanos in Arizona. And she does it in very creative ways. So she has photographs and, and um, artifacts and stories and she makes sure that they're accessible to people on the Internet and social media. So the things that you'll read about and see about may be things that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, but they let you know about the richness and diversity of the contributions of uh, people from different cultural backgrounds. She also just makes it fun and interesting. You can look at things and not even realize you're learning about history. You think you're just looking at an interesting photo of the you know, Mexican-American independence queen from 1948, and you'll see a beautiful black-and-white photograph of a woman in a satin gown with a, you know, um, a crown on her head, and then you realize that was kind of like a, a beauty pageant that was celebrated, and we wouldn't know about it if we were not part of that cultural history, but we get to learn about it as we're researching things on the Internet. So 
She's a pretty neat lady, uh, really just somebody who we're looking to do even more amazing things in the future. But she's made uh, history accessible to everybody. If you've got a computer or if you can get to a computer, you can learn about uh, the history and contributions of uh, Latino people in Arizona. One of the things that seems to stand out about these three award winners is it's not only that they are making the humanities accessible to the public. It seems like they're working with kids. And I'm wondering if that is of particular interest to you and a particular focus to you of making sure that kids and students have access to the humanities. Absolutely. And, And part of it, Mark, is that we know that not everybody has the same access to education. Uh, schools and their resources are very different. Sometimes if you're in a rural community or a reservation community um, or even in, in an in uh, urban setting, there are, are kids that don't have libraries. There are kids that don't have librarians. There are kids that don't have access to books or research material. And what these folks are doing is making sure that no matter where kids are, that they can get exposed to things that will enrich their lives. And we know that the better foundation that you have when you're a young person the more likely you are to graduate from high school, go on to college, uh, have a rich life, but also to be engaged in your community and, and have civic pride and love for where you have grown up and lived and worked. It also teaches you about things that are happening all over the world. So, you know, not to be cliche, young people are the future. And when we teach them and give them a good foundation, they're the people that uh, make sure that we are successful and, and all the things that we want to achieve as a country. Uh, the, the, we celebrate the diversity of the United States. It's one of the things that people all over the world look to us for. And so we want to make sure that kids know that they're valued, no matter how diverse the backgrounds are that they come from. We want to make sure that they're all appreciated and valued because their minds and their intellect are what our future depends on. Brenda Thompson is Executive Director of Arizona Humanities. Brenda, thank you. Thank you, Mark, and have a happy holidays.